Good morning. Welcome to Vintage Church Sunday morning gathering. I'm glad you were here today. I'm glad to be here today. I'm so thankful that God has given us the opportunity to once again worship Him, to open His Word and to learn from Him. Um, and it's true, as it was in Deuteronomy, as it is in our text today, that He, he is near us. The Word is near us. And uh, He is with us. And so we're thankful for that. We will talk about that and see how that applies to our life today. It is easy as we go along to believe, as we grow closer to the Lord, as we grow in sanctification, it is often easy to believe that we have arrived. Uh, we need passages and we need, we need the Bible. We need songs like Grace, Grace, God's Grace to remind us uh, that we have yet to arrive, that we will only arrive when we are with Him. And um, His presence is with us in a more personal and intimate way than it has ever been. That's the time we'll arrive. Our bodies will be glorified. We'll be with Him forever. We'll worship Him, love Him forever. Until then, uh, we ought not to think of ourselves as having arrived. Um, we ought to think of ourselves as pressing on towards the mark, like Paul said. Continuing to press on. So let's not... Um, this is more of a maybe just... Imagine a mirror in front of my face right now. Let's imagine that we are talking to ourselves as I am. Let us all trust in that marvelous grace as opposed to assuming that we've made it. Trust in the Lord. Trust in His grace. Today I want to continue on uh, in our discussion of Romans 10. And this is the second part of I'm not sure how many parts uh, series on the failure of unbelief and the Christian response. The failure of unbelief and the Christian response. We're looking in Romans 10, 4 through 8 today. Last week we started a small series on the failure of unbelief, pointing specifically to Paul's unfulfilled desire and are pointing to specifically what Paul calls an unfulfilled desire, uh, an empty zeal, and a self righteousness. Remember, Paul. Prayed for his people. I wish that they would be saved. Earlier in Romans he said, I would give up my own salvation. I would give up my own salvation if he could guarantee that my people, my, the people that I, my, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, could be saved. And now he again he's, has a zeal, a, a desire, and, and a prayer for them. But it's unfulfilled to a degree because we know that overall, uh, the Jewish people of that time and in general have rejected the Messiah. Uh, we saw this more and how there was a failure, their failure in unbelief, and it even translates, translates to us, was predicated on an empty zeal. It was people who did a lot, who did a lot. They followed the law. They obeyed the commands of God. They did what they were <coughs> taught to do, and yet they were missing out. We, we talked last week how zeal does not always equate to righteousness. Zeal does not always equate to goodness. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of people doing a lot of good things that if they are not done by faith, they're not just wrong, they're not just missing the mark, but the Bible calls them sin. We also saw that self-righteousness is a failure of unbelief. It's not a path to God. The reason that the Messiah was rejected, it was not that he didn't fall in line with the plan of God or the message of God because Jesus did. 
As a matter of fact, we'll mention it today, Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies from hundreds of years before. Thousands of years even. He fulfilled over 300 prophecies. It wasn't that Jesus didn't align with what God said about the Messiah. It was that Jesus overhauled and threw out, in a sense, the system that they believed that they were gaining their righteousness from. A system of self-righteousness. Jesus said, I am the way. And to that point, they had been building a system that said, we are the way. This is why the Messiah was rejected. So the failure in unbelief last week was a zeal that doesn't lead to righteousness and a self-righteousness. Paul was in great distress because of the unbelief of his people. It was the same distress that he said he would give up his own life for. We should be willing to at least consider the things that Paul said and did. Today I want to examine another area of failure and unbelief. Romans 10, 4-8. And I'm not going to read it again just yet because Melissa just did. But everything we know, friends, about faith is predicated on Romans 10, 4. Everything, our entire understanding is predicated on the idea of what Romans 10, 4 says. I want to read that for you. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ, through His obedience, has accomplished all that He set out to do. Through His obedience, Christ is the end of the law. Now there are two types of obedience of Christ that has resulted in the end of the law. There was the passive obedience of Christ and the active obedience of Christ. The passive obedience of Christ is His willingness to accept death in accordance with God's will. Philippians 2.8 said, And being found in, the, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The passive obedience of Christ is his willingness to accept death in accordance with God's will. But there is also an active obedience of Christ that puts an end to the law. And that is that Christ purposefully and carefully kept the law in every way on our behalf, in accordance with the Scriptures, to the glory of the Father. The act of obedience of Christ is that Christ purposefully and carefully kept the law in every way, on our behalf, in accordance with the Scriptures, to the glory of the Father. Therefore, what the law set out to do and could not, Christ accomplished. Mankind did not do it. But we know that man must fulfill the law perfectly in order to be saved. Mankind did not and could not do it. But we know, I'm repeating these things because they're vastly important for us to understand, that man must fulfill the law perfectly in order for us to be saved. And the law finds its end in Christ. Christ was and is the only one who could do it. In what ways is He the end of the law? Because it might be confusing, because it might be confusing to you at this point, I hope to explain it, because what I'm not saying is, is that Christ nullified the law or he made it purposeless. Because we know differently. We've already studied that in Romans. But in what end, what ways is Christ the end of the law? 
Look at the law itself. The moral law was fulfilled by the perfect man. Man must redeem man. And so as a means of fulfilling the law, in a sense, being the end of the law, <coughs> the perfect man fulfilled that. The types and the ceremonies were fulfilled. Fulfilled. The types and the ceremonies. He was the reality to which the types were pointing. And his death accomplished what the ceremonies symbolized. He even fulfilled the prophecies, as I've mentioned. Over 300 prophecies. He fulfilled the law. He has proven to be the end of the law by showing that faith comes from a source outside of ourselves and is a gift. What countless men failed to do, Christ accomplished. 1 Corinthians 1.20 says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? What the wisest men in the world could not do, God has done through Christ. He is also the end in the sense that He is the object of the faith that the law was pointing to. And that all who believe would receive Him by faith and be saved. He wasn't just fulfillment of the law. He was the object of the law. He was what the law was pointing to. He also is the freedom from the law. <coughs> Excuse me. He ended the system where righteousness was something to be attempted to where now righteousness is something to be, well, it was always this way, something to be received. Not that anyone ever gained righteousness by the law. It was always been about faith. But over time, when man can do these tangible things in keeping the law, there is this belief that righteousness can be received by doing. By doing. By doing. Righteousness has never been the method. Our righteousness has never been received by keeping the moral law. It has always been about faith. We've discussed that countless times. Abraham believed. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Now we already discussed the purpose of the law earlier in Romans. Do you remember the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was to reveal sin. And appoint us to a Savior for that sin. Verse 4 is not trying to devalue Romans, what Romans 7 says in that. Otherwise, we wouldn't have verses like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. There is value in the law. For a long time, I thought 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 was speaking specifically to the New Testament. But what I found out is that 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 was speaking to the law of God. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God will be well-equipped for every good work. Paul was talking about the law of God. It is purposeful in our sanctification. It is purposeful in pointing out sin, and it is most purposeful in pointing us to Jesus. Jesus Himself said, the law would not pass away. Not one word of it. But Jesus also said that to those who live by faith, if they tried to live by the law again, that it would become a yoke. Yeah. 
a burden. Jesus said and Paul said that it was a yoke to the Israelites. It was a yoke to the people of God. When the gift is free and clear and it is all about Christ, there is true freedom. But trying to attain it any other way is again a yoke of slavery. And in Galatians, Paul says, don't go after that yoke of slavery again. The law has value. The law has purpose. But its value and purpose was never in its salvific effect. The purpose and value of the law has been and will always be to point us to Jesus. And because Jesus has come and He has accomplished His work, He is the end of the law as it pertains to righteousness. I think it would be good, a good use of our time to continue our look into the failure of unbelief. And these are points D and E today. Or they might be C and D. I can't really remember what my outline looked like. Sorry. I actually remembered when I was doing this, but now I failed to recall. The failure of unbelief. I've got it as D. If you kept an outline for last week, I'm sorry. An incompetent fulfillment in the law. An incompetent fulfillment in the law is one of the failures of unbelief. Look at verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live excuse me, by them. Paul is pointing back to what Moses said to the people of God concerning the law. He's specifically pointing to Leviticus 18.5. Leviticus 18.5 says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now this is a little confusing because it seems like Moses, Moses is basically promising life to someone who keeps the law. Could this mean that Moses is saying that salvation comes from keeping the law? I don't personally think so, and I don't think Paul thinks so. What I think Moses is saying in this instance is that prosperity, prosperous life, will follow almost always, if not as the rule, the person or the people who keep the law. Although it's not guaranteed, there is a level of prosperity. Maybe not as the world defines it, but there is a level of prosperity by keeping the commands of God. Even if that prosperity is just an abundance of peace in a tumultuous time. Moses says that the law is the key to personal growth and personal prosperity. He's not just speaking to personal growth and personal prosperity though. He was speaking to a nation. Moses says, listen, you will be prosperous if you keep the words of God. Remember what he said in Chronicles. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, I will hear them and I will heal their land. There is a level of promised prosperity to people who keep the law of God. Again, it might not be as the world defines it. It might not be as we would even define it ourselves. Some of the most prosperous people from God's standards might not be the richest. They might not be the healthiest. 
Moses was saying that the law is key to prosperity. Keeping the law is key to prosperity. Now remember, there are more than there are more than just spiritual benefits. I guess so I should say there are more than just spiritual benefits to keeping the commands of God. What Paul is confirming here is that Moses wasn't saying you could be saved by the law. True religion is more than morality. It's more than moral acts. As a matter of fact, moral acts are inconsequential as it pertains to receiving, saving faith. Paul is saying here that you can't start with works and add a dash of saving faith and be saved. He's also saying you can't start with faith and add a dash of works and be saved. What Paul is saying is, is that although works might be uh, adequate to bring a certain level of prosperity in our life, Christ must be our all in all for true salvation. He must be, like He has self-attested, the Alpha and the Omega of our salvation. He must be the beginning and the end. Works then become a spiritual outpouring of an overwhelmingly appreciative, saved and redeemed life. Works may lead to a level of prosperity. And it may lead to heightened spirituality. But they will not lead to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They missed the idea The whole idea of the law. Because they believed. That it was some mixture of self-righteousness and the righteousness of God that got in there. They believed that prosperity. Whether physical or whatever it may have been, was the goal. And not a result Of being saved. The other part that I want to point out to you today. Of a a missed faith. What I want to point out to you. About the failure of unbelief. Is a faith. That does not speak. Look at verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says. Do not say in your heart. Who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up. From the dead. <clears throat> Verses 6 and 7 are quite interesting and important to see. What Paul is saying here is that true belief does not come from signs or spe- special revelation or the miraculous. The most miraculous thing about saving faith is the work that Christ has already accomplished. He is basing verses 6 and 7 of Romans chapter 10 off of Deuteronomy 30, 12 through 14. It was a command to the people of God not to seek special revelation as a primary goal or a primary desire. Not to seek the miraculous. Because the Lord had provided all of their needs right there in front of them. The law proved that they did not need a special word from the Lord. The words that God had given them were perfect in His time. Israel did not need something to bring the Messiah down. They did not need something to raise the Messiah up. This may seem unimportant or you might not have caught on yet, but it's very important. Because Deuteronomy was Moses speaking to a nation as he was about to leave them for forever. 
And Moses was a dynamic miracle worker. Right? Think of a few things that Moses did. Through the power of the Lord, he parted the Red Sea. Through the power of the Lord, he made water come from a rock. There were more. That was just the ones what we remember right off the top of our head. Or that I remembered right there off the top of my head. There are more than that. But Moses was a miracle worker. And Moses is coming to the end of his time. And Moses is saying, look, I'm going to leave you. (coughs) You don't need another me. You don't need someone to show you miraculous things or to do miraculous things. What you need has already been provided to you. What Moses was saying is that through the law, God has provided a roadmap to salvation. That if another Red Sea was never parted, that if the walls of Jericho had never happened, that if miracle after miracle after miracle had not been done, that the answers were right in front of them. Moses says, what you need is not to do miraculous. He uses these two examples because they are miraculous saying, who can ascend to heaven and pull God out of heaven? Nobody. Who can, descend to he- who can descend to the depths and pull Christ out of the depths? God out of the- Nobody. God does what he pleases. He is the only one with that kind of power. What Moses is saying is these are the most miraculous possible end-all be-alls of miracles. But this is not what you should seek after. This is not what you should look for or long for. When I leave you, Moses is saying, you shouldn't look for someone else like me for your answers to finding the Messiah. The answers are in front of you. Moses is saying, don't look at what you're losing or missing out on but look at what you've already had you already have listen friends i'm not what you would say the most charismatic person that you know i have prayed in my life for long periods of time to see to to speak in tongues to see miraculous things happen i've prayed for these things these things have never come for me But God has shown Himself miraculous for me in the regeneration of the heart and regeneration of the spirit of people that I love through His Word. Most prevalently through His Word. Now, I'm not trying to discount the miraculous, but what I am trying to say is the hope that is built in me is not found in what I can see through miracles or signs or wonders, but it is found in what has been laid out through the Scriptures as the revelation of God Himself. I've always said this, and you know, I've never, I don't think I've ever said this on, in, in, on Sunday before, but I've always said this when discussing it. They could find Noah's Ark and it wouldn't make me believe in God more. Right? And I think they found it. They could find the burial, they could find, if the Shroud of Turin was the actual uh, uh, burial cloth of Jesus, they could prove it. It wouldn't make me believe in Jesus more. I I could watch someone be raised from the dead in the power of the Holy Spirit, and it wouldn't make me believe in the gospel more. 
Because what I have and what I need is not in something I can't grasp right now, but it's right with me. It is right in front of me. Friends, I need you to hear this because this is, this is terribly important. Because it might not be miracles and signs for you. It might be disappointment. It might be something missing in your life. It might be something that you feel like you know you have missed out on. Or that someone else has that you don't have and you desire for. What you have and what you need is near to you. As a matter of fact, it is right in front of you. And I don't want to spoil it too much, but it's found in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Spoil it by giving away the secret, you know. It is found in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And although, you know, it would be nice to see someone raised from the dead in the power of the Spirit of God, it's nice to know that someone is healed from their sicknesses, from their infirmities. It's nice to know that the miraculous happens. And I, I do believe that the miraculous still happens. It's nice to know those things. It is not what I need to be saved. And it's certainly not what I need to prove that God is still working in the world today. It is proven because the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is right in front of me, is saving lives today and transforming people into the image of Jesus Christ Himself. It's the gospel. It's right in front of us. This is important for us because we might go on a pilgrimage for long periods of time to search for another gospel or another answer. There are books and there are very spiritual people right now who are saying, you know what? I needed something more than what the Bible had to offer. And Paul says in Romans 10, hey, who's going to ascend to heaven to pull Christ down? And who's going to ascend to the grave to pull Christ up? What you have and what you need is right in front of you. You don't need, a, you don't need the miraculous. You don't need another sign. You don't need, a, you don't need, you don't, you don't need tongues. As we talked about last week. All of those things... If they're evident and prevalent in your life, they are icing on the cake for the work that God has already done and is doing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus echoed this in Matthew 12. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 38, then some of the scribes, or it's a story of uh, Jesus' interaction with the scribes, but this is what he said. Then some of the uh, scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so with the Son of Man, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with a generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Woo! The queen of the south will rise at the, uh, the, queen of the, south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon was here. They demanded a sign and did not receive one. Jesus rejected the, the moments... Jesus rejected moments to do miracles. We talked about last week. The disciples wanted Jesus to go back to Peter's house and heal somebody. He said, no, that's not why I came out. I came to preach. 
I came to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ because what you have is in front of you. Jonah brought no miracles. Do you know what this verse is saying? You know what Jesus was saying? Jonah brought zero miracles to Nineveh. And what was the result in Nineveh? They repented. So the people of Nineveh will stand at judgment redeemed without a miracle because what was in front of them was preached to them. What was in front of them and was easy to grasp was given to them. Solomon brought no miracles, but he brought wisdom. He brought the word. He brought the the gospel in his own right. And Jesus says, a gift even greater than Jonah is here. A gift even greater than what Solomon could bring is here. I think the miraculous still happens, friends. But a religion that is built primarily on signs and wonders is a false gospel. At a minimum, at a minimum, it is, you've ever heard the old saying, stepping over a dollar to catch a dime? At a minimum, it's stepping over better to get worse. It's stepping over what's good to trade out for what's not as good. So what is the Christian response? See, a, 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 a gospel, a personal gospel that goes after signs and wonders over what's right in front of us is, 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 a, is a missed opportunity for faith. It's a failure in unbelief. An incomplete fulfillment of the law is a failure of unbelief. Not good enough. We are not good enough. We are not holy enough. We never can be. What is the Christian response then? I've already said it once and I'll say it again. Christians must truly understand and live with Christ as the Alpha and Omega of their salvation. Christ, listen, Christ must not be something in your life. He must be everything in our life. Look at verse 8. But what does it say? The Word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. What we need, friends, is right here. What we need is right here. We should not step over the gospel to receive some sign or some revelation, some answered prayer that makes us feel more spiritual or feel better. But also because this might, if you're like, if you find yourself being like me and not the most charismatic person, maybe this is important to you. Friends, we should not step over the dollar of the gospel to reach for the dime of this world. Earthly fulfillment, earthly fulfillment, earthly acceptance. Christ must be everything. And I know this may sound, sometimes I exaggerate to make a point. This is not what I'm doing right here. Christ is our everything or He is nothing to us. And it doesn't mean, that doesn't mean sinless perfection. That doesn't mean 
Um, that doesn't mean that we're going to go throughout this life never making mistakes, never having to draw back and re- recoup, recalculate, you know, gather the troops back up, figure things out. That doesn't mean that. What it means is that the vast majority of our life will be spent purposefully pursuing Christ. Christ is our everything. Another thing, another Christian response is obedience in faith. We do not obey for salvation, but we obey because we are saved. Legalism and formalism will cause us to desire to do more in order to um, be received or accepted. By God. It's a little weird to have my parents in here when, I'm, when I say stuff about them. Probably for them, not for me. But um, I will say one thing. One, there are many examples of how my parents have demonstrated the gospel for me. But one thing that they've done to demonstrate the gospel for me is they never made me feel like their love for me was dependent on what I could do for them. They never, they never made me feel like their love for me. As a matter of fact, like they loved me when they should have beat me over the head, you know, in many instances. Every, yeah, there, there you go. I thought you were really saying amen over there, bro. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But one of the things they never did was they never felt, they never made me feel like their love for me was dependent on what I could do for them. Friends, I want to tell you, you may have come up in a relationship that was unlike that. You may have been married to someone or you may have uh, had parents that were that way or relatives that were that, that were not that way, excuse me, that they, that they made their love for you seem as if it was dependent on what you could do for them. Can I tell you something? If you haven't had the greatest example of that, that is not what the love of Christ is like. The love of Christ is about His righteousness alone. It's about His work alone. It's about His goodness alone. And any work we do is not to gain favor with Him because if we are in Christ, all the favor we need is given to us. The work that we do is just because we love Him. Now the result of that for me and my family is when I was a young teenager and even in my early 20s, I was a jerk. I know, you're going to say I still am. Uh, And I didn't realize, I didn't realize these things about my parents. I thought my parents were doing good good for me and loving me in that way because I deserved it. As I grew up and as I matured and as I'm still maturing, what I realized is that I want to honor my parents because they, their love does not depend on it. You see that? Do you get that? At different levels of maturity, friends, we often feel like we deserve it. As we're more immature, we feel like we deserve this love, this unconditional love of God that's been given to us. But as we grow in Christ, what we find out is because He doesn't require us to do to gain His love, it's all the more motivation to want to do for Him. There needs to be a spiritual change in our life, friends, where obedience is because of faith in us and obedience is not to earn faith. Not for salvation, but because of salvation. 
And I'm so glad, I don't know if Blake picked the prayer out or if Stephen picked the prayer out, but I'm so glad for the prayer that they picked this morning. And who it doesn't matter who it was because they both do a wonderful job of bringing those things to us. Uh, but there was no conversation about this prayer. But my last point is about being dressed in the righteousness of Christ alone. My last idea, and we'll, be, we'll go through it really quickly. It actually, the point before I changed it to be more palatable to all of us, was the double imputation. That's what it was. We know what, and I'm going I'm to talk in that method. We know what imputation means, right? Imputation is when someone, specifically Christ in this instance, gives us a characteristic or something of himself and he places it in us so that we can have that. You might not know what the double imputation is. But the double imputation is this. <coughs> it is God pulling our sin and pulling our wrath off of us and placing it on himself. And instead of placing someone else's wrath or someone else's sin on us, instead of leaving that space empty, what he does, and that's the double part of the imputation, is he pulls his righteousness out of himself and he places it in us. Dressed in his righteousness alone. Faultless to stand before the throne. Friends, He is near to us. He is near to us in truth. And if we are in Christ, it is because He has given us Himself. And He has taken the worst of us away. It is given by faith. To those who believe and come by faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, what you're looking for is here. You don't have to go to the ends of the earth to find it. There's not a list of do-goods long enough to attain it. You don't have to ascend to heaven to pull God down or to the grave to, pull, to raise Him up. He has done the work. He has done the work. And it is near and it is close to us. It's found in His Gospel. And the most miraculous thing that can happen on this earth, and I mean this without exaggeration, the most miraculous thing that can happen on this earth is the Holy Spirit entering into the life of a believer, or, or of a person. Regeneration happening in that person. And that person becoming more like Jesus. Friends, if you want to see the miraculous happen, you don't have to search far and wide. Open your Bible. Pray diligently and trust that the God who is near will give you all of Himself. And He will. He will. Pray with me today. Lord, You are so good. You are so good. 
I don't understand how you could take my sin and my wrath and all of that and pull it off of me and put it on your son. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I'm not worth it. But somehow, in your sovereignty, in your, in your omniscience, in your omnipotence, you did it. I'll never get it, Lord. I wouldn't do it. I would not do it. I could not do it. And yet you've done it. Thank you, Lord, that you have affirmed through Paul, you have affirmed through all of your word, that the search is over, that the gospel is near to us. Lord, save us from ourselves. Redeem us as we work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Help us to be more like you. Help us to be more like your son. Draw us close to you in faith. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.